0: So we're back with another episode of Under Pressure Outdoors podcast. If you guys are tuned in to, it's called we called it budgeting the bullet, uh, and I was joined by my good friend Tyke Woden. We talked a lot about um, like the different tiers of rifles, rifle building, and defining some things, and going over some stuff. But we we felt as if we really rushed that episode to get it into the the hour mark, so. We're coming back at you with budgeting the bullet deep dive. We're going to break it into a three-part series. We're going to go over some of the same stuff. We're going to get a little deeper into it. So this is budgeting the bullet deep dive part one, and I'm joined again by Tyke. Tyke, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm here. <laughs> Sounds good. The weather's nice, so I can't complain.
1: yeah we've been getting a a little bit of a cool spell here so it's been nice
0: yeah it's a little cooler here than normal too so so in this episode we're gonna assume uh that the rifle we're speaking of is a family heirloom that was handed down as a gift or like a basic consumer brand factory rifle uh around seven hundred dollars including the scope Okay. So what what should be the out of the box expected accuracy for a for a rifle like that in your opinion?
1: Uh less than a minute and a half. Um well less than one and a half MOA, I would say, uh would be what I would like to see right out of the box uh when when buying any any rifle, uh, the tolerances and stuff that are used today when they build these things, they can come right off the assembly line and everything. Is, the tolerances are so tight. They should shoot fairly well right out of the box. Um, a minute of angle is, uh, is basically would be d- described as say, uh, one inch at a hundred yards, two inches at 200 yards three inches at 300 yards and so on and so forth so if you pull a rifle out of the box and you take it and put it on a hundred yard range you want to see less than an inch and a half group there uh, after barrel break-in of course so what is barrel break-in well the barrel break-in would just be a process of uh, you don't want to overheat the barrel and you need to get i would say probably about 20 to 40 rounds through that barrel uh, without it overheating so it's it usually would it would uh usually come in at about uh, one shot every two to five minutes or something um if you are buying a rifle read the owner's manual and it'll tell you what the barrel break-in is on that so uh but if you if you're not buying that and it's a gift or an heirloom type rifle uh you prefer, unless it, the gift was brand new Uh, You probably won't need to worry about a barrel break in. But if it's something brand new you're buying, uh, you need to break that in before you start expecting to see
0: uh, those groups tighten up. So I know it's kind of almost become an industry standard, or it did a a few years ago. And I want to think, I want to say it was when CVA, I think, was company that started making rifles they had that minute of angle guarantee which at that time you know we were seeing factory rifles that weren't one minute two minute you one two inch groups out of the box so we've reached a point where that that minute that one inch group is is pretty standard inch inch and a half shooter error so how many shots would you define as a grouping Five. Five. That's like, that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, you see a lot of people do three. Uh, Well,
1: I, I do three if I'm zeroing the rifle. So if I'm, if I'm a foot off, you know, high left at a hundred, I'm, I'm not going to shoot more than three times. And just to verify that I didn't make a mistake. And then once I know that, yeah, I'll use three and I'll walk that thing in so that it's zeroed. Uh, but to actually uh, define the accuracy of the rifle, uh I would say at least a
0: five shot group, if not seven. So what, what you have any tips to uh for zeroing a rifle?
1: Well uh if you
0: go ahead. So
1: yeah, if you're not on the if you're not even on the paper at a hundred, uh go ahead and walk that target into about ten feet and then uh, aim at that and shoot it. You could do 10 yards or 20 yards. I mean, it doesn't have to be that close, but uh, shoot at that and see if you hit paper. And that'll give you an idea where you're at. But uh, depending on if you've got a quarter MOA click at uh, at 100 and if you wanted to, you could walk it into say 25 yards or something and then uh, just do the conversion there and and you can make adjustments uh, that way. A uh, quarter MOA would be four clicks per one inch, and if it be four times that, so at 25 yards you'd be looking at about 16 uh, clicks to make an inch at 25 yards. But that at least gets you on the paper at 100. Uh, as soon as you're on the paper at 100, within uh, you know I would say about uh, what three inches or so um, of your of the bullseye on your target, go ahead and push that target back to, uh, to a hundred yards and then continue zeroing from there.
0: And I, I'm going to go ahead and say it now because I was always, always thought that, uh, I always thought this until we met an individual who thought differently that a hundred yards is not long range.
1: No, no. A hundred
0: yards is, is long range with a handgun. Yes. Uh yeah. 100 yards is, would be a standard zero range
1: yeah and even even at 100 uh i wouldn't even call that a standard
0: zero but a lot
1: of a lot of ranges you're going to find uh that are open for public use and and things like that are going to be limited to about 100 yards and so that was kind of what i had growing up was a 100 yard range and so that's what we used uh, but we just always pulled the ballistics uh, for the particular bullet we we're using and then when we zeroed at 100 yards uh, we would we would zero it over uh, over the the bullseye by the amount of drop it would be at 200 so we always had everything set up for a 200 yard zero uh, but we just did that on a 100 yard range and then just compensated for
0: the drop for that other 100 yards so what would you consider to be a consider what, what criteria needs to be met for you to consider a rifle zeroed? It, need, it just needs to hit
1: consistently uh, with whatever zero that you deem necessary. So that zero in, in Georgia might be completely different than the zero in Wyoming. Um, in, in Wyoming, you're going to want to figure out what your uh, point-blank range is and then you're going to want to zero to that uh, that that makes it where you have the most variation in distance that you can have without making an adjustment on the scope
0: and i was about to get into that because i was going to say you know we're going to talk about what's good and what's good enough and talk about the i want to see if you could explain the hunter to zero or that point blank range zero Okay, it's going to be kind of difficult without uh, visual,
1: but um, so point blank range would be zeroing for the highest point that the bullet will reach on its trajectory to a target at a given range. So you want to have it where uh, when, when the bullet exits the muzzle, it instantly starts dropping. And there's a point where it's going to, because you're zeroed at 300 yards, you're actually shooting into the air. So at 50 yards, you're a half inch high. At, uh, say, 100 yards, you're an inch high. 150, you'll be two inches high. And then 200, you'll be an inch high. And then 300, you'll be two inches low and so that way all the way out to about uh, four probably 400 yards or something you have to make there's no scope adjustments you would have to make to make an ethical shot on uh, most mid-size to large game animals
0: got it and that's i mean it's it's a it's a method it Uh, um we we've kind of got away now with modern technology and a lot of just hunting scopes where that's not necessary anymore with the, with the BDC reticle. Um, I think they're pretty cool, uh, but you have to understand how to use them and how your scope works. And a lot of companies, I know Vortex has uh, a calculator on their website and I know that Nikon has the spot on app uh, where you can, choose your scope model and reticle um, and it'll tell you what marks you know, your scope model reticle, and whatever round you're shooting and what, what the mark values are depending on what zoom magnification you're at. Uh, in second focal plane scope, which we'll get in second focal plane in part two or three of this. Cause this, that's a little further than what we're trying to get into tonight. Um. so should you should someone expect from a, a factory production rifle straight out of the box Fit, finish accuracy we kind of covered what you should be expecting out of that if the shooter is doing their part yeah you kind
1: of I broke up there at the beginning of that I missed the beginning
0: um, uh, what should you expect from a, a factory production rifle accuracy wise or or just? Well, we covered the accuracy wise, what you gotta be expecting. Um, but fit, finish, type of, uh,
1: I would say for fit and finish, not a whole lot would be expected from an out of the box factory rifle. Um, you, uh, you obviously would want want the stock to fit you that's going to reduce felt recoil and all that but right out of the box uh, they're going to make them for the average person so uh, if you're really small or really tall uh, they're probably not going to work for you and you're going to you'll probably need to do something to adjust the length of pull and uh, and then the eye relief if you're buying a rifle scope combo uh, you'll probably need to adjust that that eye relief, and that would be where when you shoulder the rifle and you look through the scope, um, it is exactly where it needs to be. You don't see any shadow, scope shadow, and you're not uh, so close that your scope's going to hit you in the face, and um, or you're going to get excessive parallax from being too close to the scope. Um, this changes a lot depending on the power of the scope. So if you got a real high power scope. Then when the power is turned all the way up on that, uh, you know, uh, 24 power scope, you're going to have to be closer to that thing to get the eye relief to come um, to uh, land right. And then uh, the lower the power, the easier it is to adjust that, that eye relief.
0: So what are some things you should be checking right off the bat before you take granddad's rifle to the range to zero it to you and before we get into that i want to bring up the fact that if you were handed down a rifle or you are loaned a rifle um and this is particularly true to someone who wears uh glasses they'll tell you hey this rifle's zeroed at 100 yards it's good to go uh, if you wear glasses or they wear glasses, the zero is not going to be the same because you're adding that extra lens in between the, your eye and the scope that is changing the perception. And I know this to be true because I've tried to shoot stuff with my wife's 22 and she wears glasses, and I can't hit crap with it. But when she shoots it, she's right on the money. Well, that That's true most of the time.
1: Uh, Whether they wear glasses or not, I know uh, it's usually not so bad. But I know, like when you and I would shoot each other's rifle, we'd we'd shoot. I would shoot uh, what about an inch and a half, two inches high left from what you did, and very consistent. But um, and it didn't matter what what rifle of yours I shot or vice versa. We were about that inch and a half off high left or low right, and it's just however we are getting behind that scope. That's how we were. That's how we were hitting. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much true across the board. Uh, if, you're, if you're loaned a rifle, you're definitely going to want to go out and confirm a zero on that uh, in some way, shape, or form. Whether you're going to put a pipe plate on a tree and out there at some unknown range, whatever, and just get behind that rifle and, and put some rounds on that plate to see where you're at. Most of the time, you won't be real far off. Uh, but you will be off uh, by as much as probably six inches, depending on how bad their vision is and if they wear glasses. But even even two people with 20-20 vision are going to shoot differently.
0: And I can give you an extreme. Uh, Breyer, who's on the podcast with me a lot, is almost quite literally blinded to that. When I pick up his rifle and try to look through the scope, for me the focus is so out that i can't hardly see anything through the scope at all
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah well focus is another thing i don't know that people realize the scope has
0: which let's let's talk about that for a
1: second uh uh so so even even your cheap scopes are going to have some sort of a of a reticle focus on them Um, and usually it's the, it's the, uh, the rear lens that would be the one that you put your eye up to will have a lock ring and there'll be threads there. So you loosen up that lock ring. Uh, Usually if it's, if it's the first time you've shot this, uh, on this scope, you're probably you'll loosen that lock ring all the way up until you can't go any farther and then get on that scope and look through it and then adjust that. You'll turn the whole eyepiece in the back and that'll move in and out. Um, in regards to the center lens there, and it will bring into focus the reticle in the scope and you want it to be in focus while the target that you're aiming at is also in focus. Um, and then once you've got that set up, go ahead and tighten that ring back down. And if you don't have an adjustable focus or a parallax knob on your scope, uh, now you're probably going to want to do this at about 200 yards or 100 100 yards or something around that 100 to 200 yards in there and that'll pretty much give you a focus wherever you're going to use that
0: that scope at um uh, so now we've covered you know grandpa's rifle is probably not sighted for you even though he says he sighted it in uh 20 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> What else should you possibly be looking for? Making sure they're tight and everything's in order before you take that. Yeah, just
1: check check the check the torque on the on the scope rings and the scope mount and the scope base if it has one. So make sure everything's tight there, and that should be something that's done. You know, at least once a month while you're using the rifle. It, it's something um, I know in the army. We did it every time we went to the range, we checked the torque on all that stuff, but, um, I don't know that that's necessary, but it's just something, those things can work themselves loose over time. And so it's just something you got to keep an eye on and make sure that they are tight. And so if, you know, if granddad put his, put that scope on there 20 years ago and he hasn't ever looked, looked back at those, uh, at those different mounting points, uh, they could have loosened up over that time. And so that's one thing to check because if his scope's loose, you'll never zero the rifle because the scope keeps moving. And so that's definitely one thing that you really need to pay attention to and just make sure that that scope is solid in there. Um, If you're on a pick pick rail, uh, then make sure the scope's pushed forward against the ledge where it needs to be, because during recoil, the scope's going to want to slide forward. So if you push it all the way forward, then it won't be able to go anywhere. Um, check, and, and then just other than that, just check the, the basic function of the firearm. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be kind of hard unless you've got the the gauges and stuff. But uh, you know, make sure the firing pin and, and everything is is uh, protruding properly. But um, make sure that it moves freely. And so a lot of them, you can kind of access the back of the firing pin and just push on it, make sure that it's doing what it needs to be doing, that it's not jammed up or gummed up with uh, 30 years of grease, uh, bolt grease in there. And then uh, you can check for bore obstructions. And obviously, the best way to do that is to clean the rifle. Um, It's hard to say when the last time that thing was cleaned. And and you just need to go ahead and clean it. And just be aware when you do clean it, go ahead and uh, shoot about three shots through it and disregard your uh, your results on those three shots. So that's a, a clean clean bore. Those are called fowlers. And uh, they just get the, the bore back to where it wants to be
0: after you uh, put a lot of
1: solvents in there.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things we covered uh, on episode 14, the importance of cleaning and how... Uh, uh, a very clean or very dirty rifle can can vastly affect your, your accuracy. Um, so that's, I mean, we're not going to dive back into that. You can go back there and listen to that. Um, but another thing I, I'll say on that, it, it kind of seems like a no brainer, but make sure that, you know, when you were handed that rifle and that box of ammo, that it is the correct ammunition for the rifle. One, and then, too, depending on the age of the rifle, um, some of those really old rifles weren't designed to handle the pressures of modern rounds. And I know you see that uh, in some of these, these straight wall cartridges where they make uh, what are they what they call buffalo bores for. Um, and they're a real hot factory load and you shouldn't be shooting that through some of the older rifles.
1: Yeah, especially your lever guns. Uh, You've got to be careful with the lever guns, especially
0: if you don't know when
1: it was made or, or anything like that. Uh, but just be careful there. there. There's all kinds of different proofs that will be stamped onto the barrel or the action for those uh, for those older uh, lever guns, and, and, and not so much the old bolt, bolt actions. Uh, those came about you know, about the time that smokeless powder did, but, um, yeah, any, anything that was designed for, for black powder, uh, you can't, you're not going to be able to put smokeless smokeless loads through there at, at, at full pressure. Um, and they do make special, special, uh, loadings and stuff like that. You can find them there low pressure loads to be able to shoot smokeless powder out of, uh, older, uh, black powder designed rifles. But, uh, and no. That- those black powder rifles are, uh, cartridge rifles are, are straight wall cartridge rifles. Uh, yeah, for the part, most right? part, there. I think there's a few of them out there, but there's not a whole lot of them. And so, yeah, for the most part, they're going to be straight wall, straight wall cartridge. And so, if you've got if you've got a uh, you know 1864 lever gun uh, with a straight wall cartridge, then go ahead and look up. You're going to look up your Winchester proof marks. And they'll they'll give you the proof marks that that show that they're proof for smokeless or proof for black powder, and then uh, I'm not going to go into all that because it's readily available on the Google machine, um, and they're they're hard to explain what they look like and and where you'll find them. Each each manufacturer is different, and um, and each proof is different, and so just you just need to look into those, uh, um, and then after after the uh, ad, uh, advent of smokeless powder and stuff like that then they they pretty much stop doing proof marks so usually if you can't find a proofing mark then uh unless it's a military rifle then uh you're probably good to go uh
0: and i'll i'll go ahead and clarify when i said buffalo boar that's not something you're going to find from winchester or remington buffalo boar is an actual manufacturer of um, so they would be it would it's a yellow box with blue print I believe blue or black print and it says Buffalo Boar and it's generally straight wall cartridges like forty five long Colt forty five seventy uh four forty four stuff like that yeah they're
1: they're high pressure loads uh,
0: but they're designed for modern firearms correct um so you know we we'll get to. Uh, choosing the right cartridge and uh, for, for what game you're pursuing and uh, you know I have been talking to a, a customer at work and he just recently picked up a 358 with no. <laughs> for what he, it was it's an absolutely gorgeous rifle. And it was a, it was a good buy. Uh And he he wanted to know what that was good for at what range.
1: Okay, I'm going. I'm gonna yeah. So can we'll, you got me. You got me still. Okay.
0: okay. Yeah, right. I got you. I got.
1: I'm you. gonna uh see if I can pull up some. You said three
0: fifty eight. Three fifty eight. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, so the the three fifty eight uh, looks like it's a uh, two hundred grain at twenty two fifty. The three hundred eight case necked up. I I would say two hundred grain at twenty two fifty would probably be good for most medium sized game. Uh, large. Medium to large game, you know, at, at a little bit closer ranges. It looks like it's going to carry a lot of, uh, it's going to carry a lot of energy out there with a 200 grain bullet. Uh, a big bullet. That, that's pretty big. But you think what you can get 308s at uh, 180 grain.
0: So you, you would say, White-tailed deer, mule deer. Uh, at three hundred yards. In. Yeah. In. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That that's an interesting looking cartridge. To be sure. So that what kind of uh, rifle is? As that? Is that a uh, a lever gun or
0: or what are they? It is a lever gun, but it's not your traditional. It's a magazine-fed lever gun. A tube mag or a detachable mag? The okay. magazine. Well,
1: yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I bet that is a, a just a beautiful, a beautiful rifle, and uh, and this cartridge looks like it would be
0: pretty good for uh, being a brush gun. It, yes, it is by no means a new rifle, and it does have built-in iron sights on yeah. it. So it was definitely intended to be a brush gun, like that that brush style gun. Yeah, the the thing
1: about uh, you know two hundred grain bullet and 2250 you're gonna uh, have some a lot of drop the farther you get out there and so it's going to carry a lot of energy um, and then it's going to fall off real fast
0: so I, I told him uh, the best thing he could do if he wants to to put something down with it now that he's got it in his hands is, is get him a hog hunt down here in Florida uh, hog I said it be yeah. a- Perfect. The hog hunt would be perfect. But so, what can having too much rifle cause, and what can and and vice versa, too much or too little rifle? Well, the effects of too much rifle are are probably
1: not counted as. Uh, wouldn't be considered as uh, unethical as too little rifle. Uh, but there are there are certain things that uh, too much rifle if you're gonna go with a 338 Lapua magnum or something like that and you're gonna go shoot blacktail deer at 100 yards, mm-hmm. uh, you're gonna you're gonna destroy a lot of that deer and so that can be unethical uh, just because you're wasting so much there. Uh, but at least you will you will have a, a clean, quick kill on that. But if you're going to go uh, try and shoot elk with a um, it, there it's not going to do what it needs to do as quickly as it needs to do it um, to, to keep the animal from, from suffering. And so um, it, it's better to err on the side of uh, enough gun. But I, I think that a lot of people um, overestimate the caliber necessary to take
0: game. Well, I, I would say erring on the side of safety uh, in not necessarily safety, but as harsh as it sounds, inability on the shooter's part to, to make sure the shot is placed exactly where it needs to be, it's better to have a little more rifle than you need than to have just enough rifle. I agree with that. But ammo's cheap
1: and guns are not. So I agree. I know the elk hunts I went on in Utah, we we went hunting with a 270 Winchester and uh, I didn't shoot any elk, but I saw my dad shoot two of them at 400 plus yards with a 270 one shot and they went right down. Clean ethical shots. But um I'm just saying that if you have of what you have is a two seventy and you think you need a three hundred to go after Elk, don't let the fact you have a, only have a two seventy keep you from it. Go spend a hundred bucks in uh in ammunition and uh, you know, a few weeks at the range and just get really good with that rifle and you can you can go on that elk hunt um, because a lot of people think, well, if I'm going to hunt elk, I need a 300 Win Mag on top of travel money, on top of you know, tags and licensing and hotel and everything like that. And I'm just saying that you can, if you're good enough, bring elk down with most large game calibers like that. Anything with a long action, a uh, six, a 6 a .270, um any of those will go ahead and they'll bring those uh, elk down and you don't need to necessarily buy a new rifle
0: you just need to practice with it and you could still do that with even smaller than a 270 i mean it it can be done with a bow so it could be done with smaller than that but you have to keep in mind when you're doing that with a bow and a muzzle loader and things you're doing it at ranges of 50 yards 60 yards 70 yards so if you're going to go on the if if you're going to stick with your we'll say a 308 and that's what you're going to hunt elk with you need to be very cognizant of that and you don't need to be taking 400 yard shots no that
1: yeah that's the other thing too if you want to if you don't want to spend the money on on a rifle you can spend the time on stalking and uh, that that's another trade-off uh, of course yeah you, your your 22 you your uh mini action stuff you're uh Two two three and and those sides three right, hundred blackout and all that probably not the way to go. No, absolutely. But not. yeah, you can get away with some short actions. Um, I maybe the the three oh eight might be fine because you got a lot of energy for quite a ways on those bullets. But uh, your your two forty threes, which is the same cartridge as a three oh eight, just neck down to a, a six millimeter is not necessarily going to do the same thing as a 308 might, even though the action and the, and the, uh, casing are the same size. So that's something to think about too. Just, uh, you're going to want to look at the the amount of energy and stuff that you're holding out to a hundred, to 200 yards. And then just, just figure out how, whether you're going to s- stock and get that close or not, but those real small, real small bullets, uh, that are moving real fast out of those are probably not going to be a good
0: choice either. And I shoot white tailed deer with a six, five Creedmoor. And there's no way that I would carry that out on an elk hunt. No people, people do it, but that's probably the smallest uh, chamber I'd use. I, I don't, um, I don't feel comfortable using it. Not that I, I feel uncomfortable with my lack of ability, um, but it, it, all it takes is one minor mistake to make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I would say that, yeah, the 6.5 Creedmoor and probably be about the minimum cartridge that I would use for elk size game. Uh, uh, white tail and, and black tail and your uh, large-game mammals or your medium-game mammals... That's oh that's fine uh, go ahead and and uh, shoot the 243 and and the six65 and and that kind of stuff there but they just uh, they don't have the same kind of uh, uh, energy and for lack of a better better word just the ability to uh, create well just the ability to create maximum tissue damage to the point where the animal dies quickly and ethically
0: so what would you say is the, the good all-around cartridge for – from whitetail to uh, – well, I, I'm going to go ahead and say moose because we are in the lower – you can get them in the lower 48. It's not as common. We're going to stick to the continental United States on this. Whitetail to moose, one gun to hunt them all seven mag (laughs) i would
1: agree i think i think we kind of covered that the last time also is just uh that cartridge is probably the most versatile that there is commercially available on the market today and and you can find rifles all over the place chambered in seven mag for around the seven hundred dollar range and ammo is you can buy it anywhere you can stop you don't have to travel with ammunition. You can stop at any local Walmart and pick it up. I don't know about now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you... yeah, uh, it's it's everywhere. And so, if you're if you're gonna buy one rifle in one chambering, the the seven mag is going to be the most versatile
0: uh, cartridge that there is. And I know for a fact you can pick up a seven mag. In the Ruger American line, uh, with a with a Vortex scope, uh, for about six hundred. There you go. So they
1: are out there, and uh, yeah, and and those are the the ballistics on the seven mag and everything are are, they're outstanding. And so you can't you can't really beat that chambering um, unless you really wanted to get into some very specific subsets of accuracy and. And things like that so yeah it's that's a beautiful round and i think it's probably going to be the the best thing uh bar none
0: so but seven mag can pack quite a punch to the shoulder how do you find that middle ground between uh recoil and terminal performance are you talking
1: uh cartridges or rifle modifications
0: or a bit of both a bit of both well if uh... Let, let's say maybe I, I have aspirations one day of going on an elk hunt I have no desire to hunt moose but I can't stand to have that uh, that seven mag just beat me to death in the in the whitetail woods of, of Florida or Georgia and here in the southeast.
1: Oh, you could uh, you could easily just step down to something that's not a rim magnum. You could get into the just the long action 30 out six and 270 range, and that'll reduce the recoil of quite a bit. Um, one thing that makes a big difference is the stock design uh, of the rifle you're shooting. If you've got a real flat line stock and all that, it's going to reduce the amount of felt recoil if the stock fits you correctly it's going to reduce the amount of felt recoil and then uh muzzle devices if you don't mind you know knocking some trees down with some uh you know the uh muzzle blast or something there while you're out walking around georgia you could put it you could put a brake on there and that reduces recoil quite a bit as well and so there are different things you can do if you're if you're dead set on getting a seven magnum then go ahead and do that and then there's things that you can do to make sure that 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 the stock is going to fit you correctly and then some put some different muzzle devices on there. And, uh, those will greatly reduce recoil as well, but they're loud and, you know, we just pray for anybody that's standing next to you. If you've got to shoot that thing.
0: And I, I can say my dad, uh, has a seven mag, a Browning seven mag with a boss on it. Uh, Which I can't remember what that Browning optimized, some sort of shooting system or something like that. Uh, But it produces a lot of felt recoil from that rifle. Um, And then I've even gone so far as to, I had a compensator, excuse me, on my AR, my 5.56. And not that that's a lot of recoil to begin with, but the way it, it, controlled recoil was awesome so they can make a huge difference in in reducing recoil and controlling recoil which is going to allow you to uh, maintain eyes on target through the scope to see the the shot impact at longer ranges yeah and, and there's
1: there's just uh they have inertia brakes and stuff like that that you can you can install into the uh the fore end, some of them I think go in there and then some of them will go into the butt stock and and they just have a you know, a liquid filled cylinder that has a weight in there and as the recoil comes that's where a lot of that gets transferred into. And so if you're not interested in having a break, there are other systems you can use uh that will re reduce recoil, but a lot of them they're gonna be more expensive than uh than just having a brake put on or or one of the other options uh, the a really big thing on on reducing the felt recoil is stock fit and so the the basic rule of thumb for stock fit would be to put the butt the butt pad in the crook of your elbow and then reach up and grab the pommel of the stock the grip and put your finger on the trigger and if that all fits and there's no space in there then you're you're going to be pretty close uh it's not an exact way to do it but it's a a good cheap uh way to make sure that that's going to fit you if it's way too short there's ways to extend it if it's way too long uh, there are ways to shorten it as well but you might be talking to a gunsmith to get it shortened
0: so how can recoil affect your accuracy?
1: Well, if if you're scared of your rifle or any gun for that matter, you uh, you're going to flinch anytime you pull a trigger. So as little recoil as possible is going to make it where you're not afraid of your rifle. And anytime you take your eyes off the target or anticipate recoil of any type, you're going to pull the shot one way or the other and you'll see really poor
0: results downrange when this happens. So, and I used to think I was of the mindset, the best way to overcome that flinching was just to shoot until we attempted to side in my <laughs> my slug gun with three-inch magnum loads. Um and that, you know, over a course of about 10 slugs beat both of us to death so bad we, we didn't really even <laughs> want to shoot anymore. Uh, but what I did to increase the accuracy tenfold on that was I actually just stepped down from a three-inch to a two-and-three-quarter-inch regular uh, savage slug. And, and cre- I, I mean, I was shooting the softball size group with the three-inch slug, and I stepped it down to a, an inch-and-a-half group with the two and three quarters slug. yeah that that'll
1: do it a, a good way to reduce a flinch is to dry fire um get some get some snap caps uh, you can you can usually find them for most calibers at at a at a gun store or uh, your large hunting box stores bass pro and cabela's stuff like that they'll have snap caps for most major calibers and you can just put those in there you don't have to have them but I do recommend them, and they're not very much. Uh, put those in there, and, and, and you... drive fire to your heart's content. And what, what that does is it'll fire synapses in your brain that uh, myelinates pathways that tells your brain to say, uh, hey, this thing doesn't go boom and uh, kick the shit out of me. It just clicks. And uh, once, you, once you have that, then you can go to the range and and you won't really flinch you might if the recoil is terrible you might your brain might go okay well we're going to go back to the flinching thing but if you just keep keep dry fire if you dry fire more than you live
0: fire uh, you probably you will be able to train that flinch out yeah you know i don't know the snap caps would have helped too much with that slug gun that was six years ago and my shoulder still still a little bit i think
1: no no but reducing the loads did
0: Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, it's the same thing. I'm just Ab- talking
1: about reducing the load to zero instead of, you know, down. It's, right. just, it's the same. It's the same thing that goes on in your brain. And then they uh, there's also there's also other ways to reduce the flinch. And that is if you reload, you can load progressively heavier lo- uh, loads into the point where you're getting to a full power load. But you worked into it instead of just going to the store and buying full power loads and then trying to get used to that. Uh, Generally, the more you shoot heavy loads and the more you flinch, the more you're going to flinch. And so about the only way to stop that cycle is to spend a lot of time on the floor, dry firing that rifle to where you get no
0: bang and no recoil. Another good thing to dry fire is you really learn your trigger, which allows you to take up slack in the trigger. You know where it's going to break. That way, when you're behind the gun, you can take up that slack, take your reach, reach your natural pause in your breathing, and then finish the squeeze to let that shot off at your most accurate point.
1: Oh, the, it's it's great. There is no substitute for dry fire. You learn so much uh, when you're dry firing, and it's probably one of the the best ways to increase accuracy across the board, whether you're shooting rifles or handguns um it is probably the best way to improve your accuracy on target
0: and it is hands down the cheapest way to improve your accuracy on target yeah
1: it doesn't get any any cheaper any cheaper than uh than when you don't shoot but you pretend to right so there are yeah and and just snap caps um You don't have, like I said, you don't have to use them, but they do help uh, when the firing pin, the the thing that stops the firing pin, which is the bolt face usually, um, and the firing pin itself, when those two slam together, uh, you can eventually probably over, you know, uh, 10,000 trigger pulls or 5,000 trigger pulls, you can make that to where the firing pin extrudes too far beyond the bolt face, and you start getting punctured primers, and so that's why I say go down, spend ten bucks, buy two snap caps, and then those have little springs in them, and when the firing pin hits it, it causes a cushion there, so that that firing pin's not just slamming into the bolt face, into the back of the bolt face, every time you dry fire, and uh, you'd be good for you know for a long time without them, but. If you want to protect the investment of that rifle, uh, go ahead and and spend another $10, get those snap caps, and and use them.
0: So we're going to take a quick break, grab a few more beers, and come back here in a second. Uh, But before we do that, we will talk to you guys about one of our partners, Sportsman Shield. They make a durable outdoor decal for your trail cameras and your tree stands that make thieves believe there is a GPS tracking device inside. You're looking at, you know, uh, $2 a sticker around about right now, this weekend they're on sale for 50% off. So it's a, again, one of those minor investments, uh, that you can make, that's going to provide you with just a little bit more protection than just leaving it there in the woods on public land. Um, it's going to keep the honest man honest and make the thief think. Make the thief think twice. So hop on their website and give them a look. Buy you some stickers when you check out. Make sure you use offer code UP Outdoors twenty at checkout to get twenty percent off your order. Hunt more, worry less. Sportsman Shield. Uh, so we're back. What minor changes can be made for accuracy improvement?
1: Minor changes would be uh, a good fit. Uh, I know I've kind of hammered that one today. Last time it was cleaning, but a a good fit uh, would make sure that you're you are able to get on that glass or the sights. If it happens to be an open sight rifle, make sure you're able to hit those sights and that glass the same way every time reliably and the best way to do that is to have the uh the comb of the stock and the length of pull uh, to be set pretty close for what you need uh, if you get an inherited rifle um there are ways to uh you know raise the the comb and it's a little harder to lower it uh, but if you need a, a lower comb sometimes you can lower the scope of rings um, if you need a a higher comb then they have pads and things that you can you can use to uh, to make all that work out so uh and, and they don't cost
0: very much and depending on how much modification you really want to do your rifle i know obviously i, I would think if you have like a family heirloom that's been passed down generation and generation you're not going to want to drill holes in the stock um but if you just went and picked up a factory off the shelf rifle and you want to get a, an adjustable comb to get that cheek weld the same every time, there's a lot of companies out there <clears throat> that make them out of Kydex and they're cheap. We're talking 40 bucks. You drill a couple holes and you can adjust that, that comb height up and down. And if drilling holes is not what you want to do, <clears throat> you can also make your own uh, using... Uh, like it's curlex which is like a medical tape that adheres to itself and you can use some form of padding underneath there and wrap that around the stock to to adjust that cone height a little bit yeah some that just fit over the stock that are padded but they're not nearly as customizable that yeah that's right you
1: can yeah you could wrap uh use an old t- shirt or something and wrap it in curlix or uh or or really anything that is just gonna adhere to itself if you if you wanted to i mean and you wanted to wrap that stock in in an old t- shirt or something and use just regular uh skin tape or something you could you could do that too <clears throat> but the the curlix is is real real cheap you can get it at walmart and then you just wad an old t-shirt, roll it up and stick it on top of the stock and and just adjust it for what you need. Once you figure out that thickness and wrap it up in in uh Curlex and you're you're going down the road. So uh that is a that's a good option. But I, you can find some of those other ones that those uh strap-on type uh bags that raise the the cheek weld there the the comb a little bit. Um and and they're not very expensive either. I think you can get them uh for about 20 25 bucks usually and they just velcro around there and but what you get is uh whatever size they thought you needed
0: right and you can hop on the the you hop on youtube or the old google machine as you said earlier and you can find a lot of videos for those types of things
1: oh yeah they're they're everywhere um
0: i do like that you were talking about that kydex
1: brand that you uh you drill in any epoxy a couple of anchors in there and then uh and they screw in with those thumb knobs. Those things are, uh, they're, they're pretty cool and they're inexpensive and easy to install. <coughs> COVID. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options out there and it's just a matter of looking. Some of them got storage on the side so you can put whatever knickknacks you want in there. Uh, uh, some of them, you know, have a uh, little bullet holders and things like that. And so, Just look around, but what you want when you put that rifle to your shoulder is to just naturally be looking into the scope with no shadow and um, as little parallax as possible based on the power you have. Um, Basically, you want to, when you adjust the scope, you're going to get on the rifle and the eye relief on a scope is going to change based upon whether you are prone laying on the ground behind the rifle or standing shooting offhand. So Mm -hmm. if you are planning on shooting this rifle offhand, that would be 300 yards and less. Make sure you are setting the eye relief for that, that you're offhand. Um, If you're planning on, you're not going to shoot anything, uh, closer than, than about 300 yards, then do it from the prone position. Um, if you don't know, then go ahead and do it offhand because you've got a little bit of time to check that parallax and things like that, uh, while you're laying there for a shot longer than your 300 yards.
0: So what's a good way to make a stable uh, shooting position in the field? Well, it depends on what you got. So
1: a couple of ways, uh, a lot of people out, out West and everything, they'll hunt with either shooting sticks uh, they probably usually have shooting sticks they've got tripods that just uh take a a gun a rest for the fore end of the rifle and um and then there's there's ways that uh you could use your backpack if you're if you're out hiking and you're doing that kind of a hunt. you can put your backpack in and you just settle it in uh one thing you don't want to do is just rest the fore end on a rock um, when when recoil happens, if it's, if the stock is on a completely solid surface, it will change the harmonics of the barrel. And you can see, uh, you know, a MOA shift in your impact down range. So if you, all all you got is a rock outcropping to rest that rifle on, make sure you put something between the, the fore end of that rifle and those rocks and that'll just make sure that you are getting
0: a consistent impact. Um so how can you judge your ability to make an ethical shot at distance? And I'm going to say I'm gonna, I'm going to put distance at beyond 200 yards. I I growing up here in the southeast and and doing all of my hunting here in the south, southeast, um, the majority of shots are usually well inside of 200 yards. With a max of about 200 yards, so we'll assume anything over what your norm here being over 200 yards. What's a good way to judge your ability to make an ethical shot at that distance?
1: Well, the the best way is to go shoot at distance, and by that I mean three, four five six hundred yards and and see what you're doing if this is not an option, then you can see how consistently you're shooting at whatever range you have available so if you all you've got if all you have is a two hundred yard range to go shoot at. If you are consistently shooting very tight groups, and by that I mean two inches or less at two hundred yards, um, that's probably going to carry into longer ranges. Um, the the one big thing, especially when you get onto these and and out west, and you're going to get into an area where you have an opportunity to take those shots, is going to be the wind. And the only way to really learn how to shoot wind is to shoot wind. Um, If you're limited to 200 yards, take your 22 out to the range, judge wind, shoot the wind and see, because that 22 is going to get acted upon by that wind a whole lot faster than than anything that would be ethical to take uh, any uh, medium to medium large game out West. And so, Mm -hmm. Uh, Take your 22 out on a fairly windy day and get down there, shoot 100, 200 yards and try try holding for that for those wind when you see it. You know, uh, you see those wind, the wind coming in and uh, make your best wind call and then hold for that wind and see what you're doing on that 22, because it's really going to show what's happening downrange. There's a lot of people that shoot the, you know, the PRS and things like that, that that train on the 22s because they're cheaper to shoot and they don't have to have an 800 yard range
0: to do it uh 22 is also a pretty good way to to learn how to um account for elevation as it drops significantly between your zero and 200 yards with a 22 long rifle oh yeah that's a good way but if you're on a fixed range if
1: if what you've got is a 100 and a 200 or just a 100-yard range, uh, once you figure out what that's going to be, um, that that drop is not going to change a whole lot. And, right. and figuring for drop is not that difficult, uh, no matter where you're at, because uh, the, the ballistics are going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to do it um, reliably. And so once you figure out that drop, uh, that's fine, and you'll be able to figure that out on whatever rifle you're going to take in the field. They've got all kinds of ballistic calculators. Every, I won't say every, but every manu- every ammunition manufacturer that I know of has their own ballistic calculator that you can go and put every, whatever ammunition you have purchased uh, for your hunt, and you can put that ammunition in there, and it will give you a printout based on that ammunition for what the drop And when deviations are going to be,
0: it's going to get you close enough because there's going to be some that there'll be other outside factors that'll play into that. You're you're looking at a perfect environment for that. Uh, and you know, barrel length, temperature, humidity, those things are going to play a difference or or make differences in that drop. Uh,
1: They are a lot of those calculators, though, you put in. Um, they have options where you can put that stuff in. Obviously, you're not going to know humidity, temperature, but you probably have a good idea about elevation and you know what your barrel length is. And so you can put that information in there and they'll give you a pretty good idea where you're going to be. And they they come out, they do come out close. And so it is something, it's a good place to start. Um, If you don't have a range and you still want to go on that hunt, go ahead and use those drop calculations off of the ammunition manufacturer's uh, ballistic calculator and and they'll be close enough Um, they're not going to be they probably won't be dead on but we're talking 0.2 inch or something like that which is not going to make or break uh, an ethical shot on that game and so
0: you can take those and write them down on a three by five card and tape them to the side of your your buttstock
1: yeah, you could tape them to the side of the buttstock or if you wanted to cut that three by five card down, if you're only going to go out to, you know, if you wanted to go out to uh, 500 yards or something on that, you could put you could put your full value four mile and your full value eight mile uh, wind drift and your uh, bullet drop out to 500 yards onto a card, cut it down and tape it uh, the opposite side of the bolt throw. And it's a lot easier to look at. It's just a matter of turning the gun to the side. And then you can see everything there, uh, either dial or hold, and you're in business.
0: So uh, So, uh, the hard part's judging wind. Let me clarify real quick what you just said. Okay. Four, Four mile is not talking distance. We're talking four miles per hour and eight miles per hour. Uh, and a full value and is directly from your left to right. Uh, ye, that's correct. Um, and, and
1: then from those numbers, a half value would be one half of that distance. A quarter value is one quarter of that distance. And a three quarter value would be three quarters of that distance. So it's very easy to mentally do that math in your brain. If you've got a, if you have a half mile hour wind and you've got a four and a half inch drift at a hundred yards on that specific ammunition that you're using, um, it's very easy to cut four and a half into half and then hold that amount. So that's why you don't really need to have your three quarter, your half value and your quarter value. If you wanted to do, um, your your full value and your half value then you could do that also and it's it's even easier than to figure out your quarter and your three-quarter value
0: so and on top of that the majority of people these days have smartphones and there are a lot of apps out that will calculate all that stuff for you uh that you could input that on the fly uh I'm not sure if they operate without cell phone signal or not, but, you know. Well, there, the
1: Kestrel makes a Bluetooth wind machine that Bluetooth to your phone. Um, and then it just, it puts in uh, your elevation, humidity, uh, temperature, and wind speed into the Ballistic calculator itself, and on your phone, and then you just look at that, and it gives you what you need to hold for that, for that distance. All you got to do is put in the range.
0: But the Kestrel wind machine can also cost just as much as the rifle. Yeah,
1: no, that's true. So there are things out there. You know what I did growing up? Uh, I tied. I would get a piece of cotton, cotton string, and I would pull it apart. So all I had was just a few little or. just some a few threads so uh you take a piece of contractor or mason line and you cut about a foot off of that and then you unwind it into three pieces and then you tie that around the end of the barrel and as you're holding it out there if the wind's blowing left to right or right to left or quarter value or half value you'll be able to see that string will blow in the wind and you can kind of tell based on how Far it lifts off of the the vertical plane how fast those winds are going uh, generally if it if it goes uh, you know about all the way so if it's blowing straight out sideways that's about a a uh, 10 to 12 mile an hour wind and so you can go and if it's hanging still not moving that's zero and so you can kind of look at that and you get a really good idea of how fast the wind is blowing and which direction it's blowing uh, just by looking at that string. And that doesn't, I mean, you can buy a roll of that Mason string from Lowe's for $8 or something like that for 5,000 feet. And and you're in business.
0: Then you got plenty of string left over for whatever else you want to use it for.
1: Yeah. So then if you wanted to, you know, uh, pour concrete in your backyard or something, uh, there'd be plenty left or if you have, you know,
0: 5,000 rifles, you could do them all. <laughs> so, at when does wind become a factor? Uh, well, I'm going
1: to caveat by saying it depends on the wind. Because if you got a 90 mile an hour full value wind, it's going to matter. Uh,
0: Listen, I'll tell you this. If you're out hunting in a 90 mile an hour wind, you're, you are, you are a brave soul, or you're in a, you're in a world of hurt because you didn't intend to be that way. So, well, I'll go purposely hunting in a 90 mile an hour wind. <laughs> you're a brave soul. You're far braver than I. But it does,
1: it does happen fairly often in, in Wyoming and stuff where you get these winds that are 40 miles an hour consistent and, and you just have to hunt in them. Um, and at that point, it's like the wind matters I would say uh maybe fifty a hundred yards it's you're good, but anything past that and so uh the wind matters based upon how the wind is uh if it if it feels normal to you and not like you need to tie your hat down um I don't think that you really need to worry too much about wind until you get out past about two two hundred and fifty yards or something like that. Um, and so it'll depend if you've got, you know, five, five mile an hour full value wind is going to start mattering at, at, uh, 350 yards, uh, 10 mile an hour full value is going to matter at say 150 yards and, and so on like that. And so, uh, the best way to do that and know is to shoot and wind. There's no, there's no substitute for doing it um and so if you're going to go if you're planning on going to a place where it's going to be really windy like some of the mountains in wyoming or montana in that area colorado um yeah just you need to practice shooting in the wind and that's going to be your best your best indicator and you can even do it on 100 yards Um, if you pick real windy days to go out and shoot uh, go out to 100 yards when you've got a a 10 mile an hour wind across the range and just see it may not push you completely off target. But again, we'll go back to MOAs. If that is pushing you, if a 10 mile an hour full value wind is pushing you um, an inch and a half to the right on a left to right wind, then that's a minute and a half. So at, um, At two hundred yards, that's three inches, and and so on, and so that's where it matters. You need to know what your what the how the wind is going to push that bullet um, in, in minutes of angle at whatever range you're able to shoot it at.
0: So we've talked a lot about wind, but when does temperature start to make a difference? And the big thing I I think about is like me here in the southeast my time to spend the majority of my time on the range and not in the woods actually hunting is now and we could have temperature variations from 89 to 104 degrees with real high humidity uh this time here and then i could go out to we'll say colorado to hunt elk in december and it would be five degrees yeah, so temperature
1: makes the most difference in your max deviation on velocity. So, a lot of uh, a lot of modern pow- powders that they use to to load ammunition are they're be- they're getting to where they're less and less affected by temperature. And so, as long as you're getting you know modern ammunition and you're between you know, above, you're above freezing and, and below melting, uh, where, you know, below catching on fire, I guess, as long as you're, as long as you're above freezing and below catching on fire, you're going to be fine. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, if you are going to go and shoot in sub freezing conditions, when you get there and your boots on the ground, you need to go re-zero and and see what that's going to do because if you've got a max deviation at 70 degrees of uh, 20 feet per second uh, that's that's going to be decent and it's going to be close to what you're going to get off factory loaded rounds Um, you're going to get a certain impact point but if you go to a, a sub freezing condition with that same ammunition it's going to burn slower come out with lower velocity and so it's going to increase your uh max deviation from eighty degrees where if you shot twenty two fifty at eighty degrees and you go into five degrees, that may only shoot twenty, you know, twenty two twenty or something like that. And that max deviation is going to change your point of impact downrange because the bullet's coming out
0: slower. So we talked a lot about guns. And bullets um but that's only half of the equation or i would say it's a third of the equation uh when you factor in the shooter but how big a factor do optics play or scope play at extended ranges
1: um to put it simply by the best scope that you can Afford. Um, the optics are your method of sighting, and if you're putting a a Daisy BB gun scope on your rifle, it's not going to work out well. So, I get it. People say you hear a lot. Spend as much on the scope as you spent on the rifle. I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, based on the the whole premise of this podcast don't do that if you're going to buy a 600 hundred dollar rifle buy the best scope you can afford um, if all you can afford is a 300 scope buy that put it on but definitely get the best glass that you can that you can afford um the, a big thing to look out for especially if you're gonna if you're planning on going to ranges beyond two to three hundred yards is you wanna have a parallax adjustment on the scope and the ability to adjust the the drop and wind externally is a big plus as well. Uh, there's all kinds of scopes out there. Vortex makes awesome glass and you can get them for around three to $400 and they're just, they're beautiful, they're crisp, they're clear. And, and it's just, it's great glass and so, and um, as as much as many features as you can get in there as well um, especially for for shooting at distance you want to be able to adjust that that parallax so because the parallax you could have as much as a minute or two in parallax at three to four hundred yards and that's a that's the difference between hitting what you're aiming at and not or making
0: an unethical shot what is parallax and what purpose does it serve
1: so parallax is the difference between optical focal points on 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 a scope you have multiple optical focal points like a magnifying glass where they are focused in at a certain distance from each other on one of those reticles, there is a, uh, the crosshairs are etched. If the distance between those two focal planes (laughs) on that um, convex glass is not the correct distance, and this changes based upon the range. So if the distance between those two is not correct, then the crosshairs that are etched on the glass when you look at them even though they look like they're on target they may not be they can they can move around in there um the way you check parallax is you get on the you get on the scope you look at a target and without picking your head up or losing your eye relief you just spin it in a small circle and if the crosshairs come off of the target at all, then you have parallax. There is no such thing as a scope without parallax. They all have it because of physics. But if you have any movement on those crosshairs off of the target, um, then you'll need to adjust your parallax if possible. Uh, Not all scopes have an ability to adjust that the parallax, but uh, most of those are going to be, you know, either fixed power or low power
0: optics. Generally your parallax knob would exist to the left of your windage and elevation knob on the left side of the scope, or it would, it would uh, be in the bell of the scope, which would be the far end away, from the, eye, the large end of the scope. <clears throat> and you can twist that bell in back and forth. Uh Generally, it's on the bell end of the scope, in your less expensive scopes, and then in your your more expensive scopes, it's going to be on the the left hand side.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll have a third knob there on the left, or I don't know like some of the loopholes I have on my deer rifles, they got the parallaxes down on the on the objective end of the scope, and so. But yeah, that's where you would adjust it, and the way to adjust it is you get on the rifle, you sighted a target and you kind of just move your head around in very small circles and and just do that until those crosshairs stop moving off the target. Um, you'll really notice it. I don't know the parallax matters under, it's probably 8 power, but once you get above that, uh, 10 power is not even really necessary, but there is a little bit of parallax there. But when you start getting into 20, with 25-26 power that's where you'll really see a lot of parallax
0: so I mean we've, we've covered pretty much everything I'd set forth for this episode uh, That that would be matter of factly but opinion based what do you consider to be too far to make an ethical shot I'm pulling
1: the trigger, sure probably about uh, too far would be anything over five hundred yards
0: okay and what what makes you consider that too far i'm I'm just not i
1: I can make uh reliable hits past that but the the bullet flight time and shooting at something that also moves um you know you you pull a shot you've got a second and a half flight time on that bullet whatever you're shooting at can take one step forward and you went from a heart and lung shot to a gut shot and and that is kind of my issue with going out past about uh, 500 yards. I don't know that I would necessarily even take a 500 yard shot, but I, I don't think I would even consider it beyond that, just because there's too
0: many other factors that I don't have control of will come into play. And I agree with you for the for the same reasons. Um, and I'll say this: if you can get to a to 800 yards, uh, it's probably pretty likely you can get to 500 um well that's probably pretty likely you can get closer than that and i know there are there, there are outlying scenarios where um that that shot is not possible at 500 yards due to terrain or uh, what have you um, but there's a lot of things like you said that, that have to come to consideration uh it shots much further than that yeah well, flight time is a
1: big thing. a lot can change in a second or a second and a half
0: it doesn't time. even take it, you talk about a second a second and a half. I've seen shots go bad at at thirty yards uh because you squeezed off a shot at the same time an animal stepped uh cool. And it's just it. It's something you got to consider, it, and it, it all plays into the fact, you know, if you're looking at a, a an animal that's feeding in one location, and it's fairly still, um, then you're you're probably okay at, at 500 yards. But I I don't know that I would take a moving animal, a shot on a moving animal. That's going to have to be within inside, inside of 200 yards. Easy, yeah. Uh, at uh, a walk, at a walking pace, and even then, I'm not entirely comfortable at that. Yeah, uh, I've made shots on animals that were moving fairly quickly, uh, but they've all been inside of fifty yards. Um. Uh, but that, in and of itself, takes a lot of experience behind a gun to hit a moving target with a rifle. It does, and it's not much you can do to train for that.
1: Shoot moving targets.
0: It's easier said than done. I mean, I and that's and I say it's it's not easy, but. I mean, that could easily be accomplished by using uh, helium balloons in an RC car. Yeah. Um, But still, nonetheless, if if you can... It's better to wait and say you saw than rush it and say you don't know where the animal is, if it's dead or not. Because that's something... I've made bad shots. We've all made bad shots. It happens. Uh it's not something we're trying to do. But it has eaten me up inside knowing that I made a bad shot. Yeah. Well, and that and that is exactly right. Usually uh,
1: if you if you're going to see game at 3 4 500 6 7 800 yards, they're not running from you if they're moving. They're just moving, and so normally you can let them go, and just keep stalking, and you'll be able to get them either where they're not moving, or you'll be able to get a lot closer shot on them. And um, yeah, I mean, I've made I've made shots on on moving game out to uh, you know two two hundred fifty yards, and and they were they were good hits and everything, but it's not something that I I don't think I would ever try it beyond that, especially. Um, the, you know, the areas you're talking about hunting over there in, in Georgia and, and Florida where, where it's like that, these were all shots where, you know, the, the deer is running through a field. And so I'm not worried about a tree or anything like that. I I can track them and be able to put my hold on there and pull it off. And it's gonna, it's gonna hit. And if it's not a quick kill, it's not going to disappear it's still going to be in a field and I've got a definite opportunity for a follow-up shot. And so I have made those shots, but it's not something that I'm a huge fan of making. Um, And so, yeah, it just kind of, it, it really depends on where you're at, what you're doing and what that animal is, is up to. If they're bedded down or feeding in an area or something like that, then, then uh, that might be an option out to 500, but, yeah moving like you're talking about i I don't know that i'd try that um over about generally and there's normal circumstances i probably wouldn't try that shot over
0: 100 yards i would say some of the best practice i've ever got on take up and a a good thing to take up and it's fun and it can generally be done year round take up uh predator hunting
1: yeah that's a good way to get a shot at something moving uh
0: I killed quite a few coyotes. I've had one specifically shot from underneath me. <laughs> so who did that? Yeah. Yeah, who did that? <laughs> hey, I just want you to know it's hung on the garage wall with pride. Hey, I'm I'm glad you still have that skin.
1: It's still up there. It came out of storage when we moved and I was like, I can't get rid of this thing now. It spent too much time at that troop in the Army, and uh you know it's like now nope,
0: this thing is just with me now, well, we put in all the effort to skin that thing out you you had to at least do that
1: yeah we had we had to do that, and then I had to uh cure it, and there's just too many memories attached to that hide, and I just it's gonna be there. You know, Sadie got her first tick off of it, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's too too much blood
0: on that hide. I can't I can't get rid of it. You know, to tell that tell that story, we were we had decided to go out uh, coyote hunting one morning, and we had just pulled up to the to a field that we were going to go set up in, and as we pulled up, there was a coyote skirting across the field, and I'm hurrying to get everything out of the truck to go get set up, try and call him back in. And I hear Tyke Tyke, where's the rifle? Where's the rifle? I said it's in the floorboard. And as I'm in the back seat of the truck pulling the shotgun out, uh, I hear cow. And I look up over the truck, and he's already killed the coyote from the passenger seat of the truck across the field. <laughs> Never had a chance. <laughs> Never
1: had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> hey you know we got a hair trigger out here right yeah 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 yeah. that's where you you see hair and you pull a trigger
0: <laughs> that's uh we had some we had some good times cody hunting we had some rough mornings <laughs> yeah some rough evenings. and some rough evenings from the morning that i had the 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 hole punctured in the sidewall of my tire
1: yeah yeah, that was a rough
0: one kept us out of the woods for two hours because got to the gas station put gas in the truck realized there's a hole in the tire we're like all right, you know what we're just going to change it right here at the pump and we're going to get on the way so go to drop the spare tire and I don't know what kind of neighborhood the guy who owned the truck before me lived in but he had a cable lock had cable locked the spare tire to the frame of the truck (laughs) Oh, couldn't get it off. Had to get a, a plug kit from the pilot station and then plug the sidewall, drive back to my house, cut the cable lock with a Sawzall after trying to cut it with a jeweler saw and that didn't work.
1: No, we bought a. Remember, we went in the truck stop and we bought a hacksaw and we ran through all nine hacksaw blades that it came with. Yeah. didn't even touch it. It cut the plastic casing.
0: And it took a solid four minutes, four or five minutes to cut through the cable lock with a Sawzall. Oh, that was a rough day. And to top it all off, when I got home, I was just so tired of not seeing stuff. And then having that rough morning, I I got in my beer fridge in the garage and it was a little cold outside. So when I cracked the beer, it just froze solid from bottom to top. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? That just fits perfect with this day.
1: Yep, that seems right. That checks out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no.
1: Yeah, that was that that was that day, and it's yeah we we walked around. We covered a lot of ground that day too, but we got out there so late, and just wasn't wasn't good. But we did see a lot
0: of uh, Fort Campbell that day. We did, and the only thing we had come in that day, I believe, was that fawn that came in right up on top of us.
1: Yeah, well, we walked up on it. I think it was laid bed down there. Yeah, but, <laughs> it's, it's good times, good times. But I did, I did uh, still have that that old coyote hide hanging up here. Uh, there's
0: too many memories there. Yeah, I, I, I remember hunting over that gut pile, just hoping.
1: <laughs> yeah, just hoping nothing but vultures though. Yeah, just <laughs> buzzards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was no good there, but uh yeah, that was that was pretty funny and uh <laughs> and and that that hide the way the way I skinned it is just the it' just the crudest looking piece of shit they've got <laughs> it's all crooked and just like part of it, you know, and I didn't cut the legs off even, and <laughs> like, can't even tell what it came off of, but it's but there. I know. I know, I know. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's actually sparked a lot of conversations in, uh, in the old shop here.
0: But it's got a good story.
1: <laughs> it does, and that's why it's up there, because it does have a good story. And a lot of people know want to know what it came off of, because you can't tell
0: by looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're coming to the end here. You got a tip of the week, under pressure outdoors tip of the week for us?
1: Uh, I just, no, I didn't come up with anything.
0: You let me down. I know it. I know it. It uh, wasn't in the outline, and I forgot. I'm I'm going to go ahead and hammer back in on the dry fire because it's it's cheap, if not free, and it can play a huge part in, in proving your accuracy.
1: Okay, I'll caveat. They make a lot of laser rounds for dry fire practice. So you can look into those. They replace the snap cap and they improve your dry fire practice. Um, There's a lot of things out there on the market and there are ways, there are ways to see where, where you're hitting. Um, One thing that you can do is stare at a white wall and it will really show up on something with no aiming point whether or not you are, you're manipulating a firearm when you pull a trigger.
0: So this has been part one of at least a three part series. Uh, we'll see what would come up. we we'll hit part three. If we got to jump into a fourth part and, uh, go from there, but
1: well, you know, for me, the, uh, the heirloom slash gift slash consumer rifle um, category uh, is is the hardest thing to to cover any content on because uh, we're talking really really kind of uh, you know basic budget basement stuff. When we start getting into the semi custom and the customs, um, yeah, there'd be a lot more
0: cover. So, well, you know never really know what you're going to get, especially with an heirloom, because you can't expect if you're inheriting um, like a sporterized military rifle, the, you've got a sporterized Mauser or a sporterized Lee Enfield or something like that. You're, th- those rifles weren't weren't designed with minute of angle accuracy in mind. They were designed with minute of man accuracy in mind.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Not saying they're not going to be accurate, and they can't be accurate, but there's just you have to come at that with a different set of expectations. Uh, I mean, I, I regularly hunt deer with an M1A, uh, that military. It's it's a military style service rifle, um, and it is not nearly as accurate as my my uh, six Creedmoor, but uh, I regularly pull an inch to an inch and a half group out of that, uh, rifle. And I've done very minor modifications to it,
1: right? That it's, it's just a broad, broad category. And we're talking, you know, being able to take, take a rifle that I have no idea what condition it is and make it more accurate. And it just is a, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard topic to try and cover generally. Um, but yeah I think I think we uh we got this one, but we'll see if you can keep this in three parts or not.
0: Yeah, we'll find out, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> so if you guys have listened this long, you know, uh, hop over to iTunes if you're listening on iTunes, on the Apple podcast, it's not iTunes anymore. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review, tell us what you think. Uh, if you just hate us uh, then I, I really don't care um i if you hate us i can't believe you've listened to to almost two hours of this but uh regardless leave us a review let us know what you think it helps us get up there and compete and puts us up further in the search bar so shoot us an email at under pressure at gmail uh, if you got any questions find us on facebook find us on instagram shoot us a message and we'll be sure to get back to you so Until next week for part two, we'll see you guys. All right, see you guys.